All right, good afternoon, everybody. I'd like to welcome everyone who is watching and following along with this edition of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame's Hall Call Interview Series. As always, I'm Will Driscoll, the Executive Director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Hoping everyone is having a great summer. I know it's gone by a little too fast, but I hope uh, everybody is still having a good one. Uh, as always, before we get started, I'd love to thank our Hall of Fame partners, Priority Automotive, the City of Virginia Beach, Davcon Inc., Optima Health, ESPN Radio 94.1, and of course, our friends at the Hampton Roads Sports Commission. Well, let's get started. You know, sports during the pandemic has certainly taken on a different look. And uh, here we are 18 months later, and we're still talking about it. But throughout this whole process, we've been fortunate to talk to athletes, coaches, and even media members. But one of the components that we haven't had a chance to talk to are the officials, the referees, the, the officiating side of the game. Well, today that changes. Uh, as you can see on the screen, joining me today is Norfolk native and Old Dominion University alum, Tony Brothers. I have to throw in Booker T alum as well, Booker T High School alum, fellow Eastern District fella. Um, he's entering his 28th season as an NBA referee. He's got 1,600 games under his belt. He's been on the court during 10 NBA finals, including games two and six of this year's NBA finals that just concluded in July. Tony, thanks for taking some time to join us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So the next season tips off in October, October 19th. So we're happy that you were able to take some time today. You can follow Tony on Twitter at tbrothers25. Uh, obviously, if you have any questions while you're watching, please feel free to throw them up on the Facebook live stream. We'll see if we can get them over to them. But Tony, let's just kind of kick it off with, I think, the lowest hanging fruit here. Take us through these last 18 months uh, and the roller coaster you've been on as part of a professional sports league dealing with a global pandemic. What has been... I guess the most challenging uh, thing that you've dealt with, but also what's kind of been something where you you've learned that you can adjust to this new normal. Well, the NBA was the first professional sports league to actually shut down. Um, I was in Sacramento uh, the day, the night before uh, they actually canceled the games there and canceled the rest of the season. And I had gone from Sacramento to LA and I had a day off. And um, when we were watching the news, it started popping up that the NBA had canceled the game due to players testing positive in Sacramento. And so we were all instructed to head home, uh, which we did. I came home and then I was home until um, actually went to the bubble in Orlando. Uh, we went in the to the bubble in Orlando. I was there for 96 days. Um, and so the place was 1.7 miles in radius. And um, that's all I saw for 96 days. Um, I can't tell you that we were in there and that the accommodations were horrible because that's not the case. That's not the way the NBA ever functions. But um, still, we were, you know, confined. Um, but one of the things that kind of kept me motivated there was that the world did not know how the world was gonna come out of the pandemic. And the NBA, by isolating testing um, and controlling the environment, the in and out of the environment, showed that we could at some point get back to some sense of normalcy, especially uh, pre-vaccine or whatever, not knowing how long that might take. And so for every day that we stayed there and were able to play games, even though Sometimes some players were testing because testing positive or just having negative tests. Um, and a lot of the people that worked there, um, that was not like one of the functions where they tested every day. So 
um, the potential for, you know, uh, there to be some cases was there, but they kind of kept everybody away. The people working there were away from the people that were um, there to participate. So um, they did a really good job there. I left the bubble, came, got out the bubble, came back home and really needed to kind of detox. And the next thing you knew, we were headed back out again. Uh, and this time we were gonna be in uh, the various cities, but with no fans. And so the testing regiment in the bubble was nowhere near the testing regiment outside the bubble. And so we were tested every day in cities. We would go and have to go either to the hotels where the teams were, or go to practice facilities or wherever and test. We test before the game, after the game. And so uh, we had to be in cities much earlier than we normally had to be in cities. So it was more time away from home after already being away for over you know, three months. Um, and then finally, when the vaccine came out, um, some of the uh, restrictions, they were still testing, but some of the restrictions of the vaccine, vaccinated referees um, were reduced. And that um, you started to see things progress and move forward, which made you feel a lot better about where we were headed. Um, and so now, um, you know, fast forward to today, um, we just finished the season, as you said, game six in Milwaukee. And in less than, you know, about, I guess it's about what now maybe, it's less than a month, I'll be in training camp again. Yeah. And so essentially, it'll be three years of continuous basketball without a break. And that's hard. Like it's hard and, but necessary. So in the mornings when I wake up and I watch the news and there are people that don't want to get the vaccine and whatever. And I'm like, like the, the sacrifices that those people like the, you know, those of us like in the NBA that we are making to, you know, provide something to show that there can be a sense of normalcy at some point. You know, I wish everyone would go out and, and you know, and have second thought or not have second thoughts about the vaccine, but go and actually get it done. Yeah, I mean, we're 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 stronger together. Um, you, mm -hmm. you definitely you mentioned that the NBA was the the first league to shut down. I mean, that flashpoint of Rudy Gobert testing positive and the doctor running out onto the court. I think as a sports fan, that day will always be etched in my mind. But then you mentioned you just said it. You guys will now be on about a three year continuous cycle. You know, we. We hear a lot about how that affects the players, but from an official standpoint where, you know, you're traveling to and from, you get your game assignment, you're at home, you get on the plane, you go, and then you come back. You know, what does that do to your mindset and how do you stay, I guess, physically and mentally prepared for the grind that you know you're about to embark on again? Well, there are definitely some differences between the officials and the players and they're the product. So there's gonna be differences. Uh, we fly commercial and uh, they don't fly commercial. So that's a entirely different deal. They play and then in most instances, they leave after the game and go to the next city. So when they wake up in the morning, they are where they're going to be, go to their practices, shoot arounds, whatever they do for us. You know, when that next morning comes, that, that's when we're getting up to try to get to the airport to get to where we need to be. One of the things that was good about this past season was that they allowed us to stay in some cities for multiple games. 
And that's never happened before. Like normally, you know, you want a different group of referees in for each game, but um, that was very helpful because it wasn't as much, it wasn't as um, uh, strenuous or stressful for us to get from place to place. But as far as time in the league, I've done, after completing 27 years, the way it averages out, that's actually nine years away from home. Every year in the league is three years. I mean, every three years in the league is a year away from home. So, you know, I'm approaching nine years um, away from home and, and continuing on. And so for us, it's, you know, you get a schedule and you might have two games, you might have five games. Um, there is a maximum amount of time that we can stay out on the road before we have to come back. Um, but the travel is definitely the hardest part. There's re the reduced number of flights now um, due to the airlines trying to come back. And so um, even in that effort, all the flights are full. And so it causes um, departure delays and everything, which is a snowball effect on everything that we do. So it, it's rather frustrating, but I can tell you that to uh, pull up to the arena game six and 65,000 people outside and 28,000 people inside is something that I didn't think I would see for a long time. And so at the end of the day, the bubble was worth it. Three consecutive years of basketball is worth it because you know we are we are a sports driven world, and you know without sports, uh, that outlet, that you know referee that you want to hate or the team that you want to hate or whatever the case may be, you know I, we would have a whole lot more issues in households than what we currently have. So. Well, there, there's a reason why they're called spectator sports, and you have a unique perspective because you mentioned you were in the bubble. You refereed during the finals in the bubble. Fast forward, you know, less than a year later, and you just mentioned it. There's 100,000 people in Milwaukee waiting to celebrate the Bucks championship. Uh, did you think when you were in the bubble that you would get to that point that quickly? I think you already kind of answered that, but how long did you actually think that it was going to take to get back to normal? Well, I, I really didn't know. Um, I knew when we started without fans in the arena, uh, there's just something so different about basketball without fans there. And then as you know, we got, we found out that the vaccine was coming out and we started hearing little whispers about potentially having fans and the NBA took all the safeguards of keeping the fans back away from the floor. Um, but I knew just, just as um, they were uh, very conscious and shutting the season down, um, they also would be as conscious in opening the season back up, um, but trying to get everything back to a normal point as soon as possible. So I don't really know how long I thought it would be. I think I was thinking that this um, past season would be without fans and then we would come into next season potentially after there was a vaccine and we would have fans in the stand but to go to madison square garden the first game one of that atlanta series i had atlanta on new york to go there and it was the first night the arena was full and to have the people yelling and screaming and for new york they hadn't been able to yell and scream for a while I think the they playoffs. celebrated in the streets winning game one, right? Yeah. And just to just to to see that, like I was, you know, I don't know what my expectations were, but I was happy just as a world, as a world of people that 
that whole thing of being able to put that many people together was finally coming back around. In your line of work, did you find it more challenging to do the bubble atmosphere or what you guys went through in the in the 72 game season this past season? Um, I mean, the family component weighs just as heavily as having to go and test and um, leave early. Um, I, I don't want to go back to that isolation mm -hmm. by any stretch. And the NBA has taken care of me well for 27 years. And so if they asked me to go back into the bubble, I would go. I wouldn't be kicking and screaming because I know they would think that was what was best. But I would have to tell you that from the bubble to what we went through last season, it is all mentally drained. Um, and the, the stress level, I would say it was less stress in the bubble because testing was right down a couple buildings down from where my uh, room was and it was all right there on the Orlando campus. But when we got back out into um, the arenas, trying to get to the testing facilities, trying to find times that worked around flight schedules and everything. And if you missed testing, you didn't work. Um, it was it was stressful. Yeah, and I, I think more stressful outside. So when the vaccine came, um, it didn't stop us from having to get tested, um, but there wasn't as much testing and there wasn't as much lead time. And by that time they had got a system down that worked really well. So um, I, you know, they are both things that I don't want to have to do again, but um, if I did have to do them again, the, the NBA always makes sure that they try to minimize how much it impacts you. Was the interaction between the players and the officials any different, seeing as now you could really hear everything that they were saying and they knew you could hear everything they were saying? Well, I think the difference is, is that we always hear what they say. You just <laughs> can't hear what they say. Um, so I think it's a different, um, different dynamic when you hear it and you're like, is that what they're really saying? Because there's instances where you thought they were saying things that were much worse than what they're saying. And so in our business, as long as you don't make it personal, you're okay. So, you know, that's a bad call. It doesn't bother me. Now you're terrible. That's different. So, you know, they're yelling and all of those things. I mean, that's just the competitiveness. But um, for the most part, um, it's it was different um, because I, I talk a lot when I'm out there and I have to be conscious of the things that I say. Um, because it's not just the players that talk, the referees talk, we engage each other. Sometimes we diffuse situations by conversation. And so that's a little bit, um, um, it, it, it made me have to come up with a different method of dealing with players and coaches uh, on a regular basis because you can't have the little bantering back and forth sometimes that you have and the situation goes away you know, because the last resort is the technical file. That's the last resort. So, you know, you want to try to resolve the issue, but you really don't want everybody in your conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you definitely don't want to, you know, affect the game in that way where a player is not on the floor. Um, you've been doing this a long time. Over a quarter century, as we mentioned, you're entering your 28th season. You've seen the ebbs and flows of the game. You've seen the years where games would end in the 60s and now games are ending in the 130s, 140s. What's been the biggest change to you that you've seen in just your time refereeing NBA games? 
Well, I actually don't look at the game the way that you do. And if you ask me about scoring and all of those things, you know, I am a judge. You know, that's my job. That's how I see the game. And so when I'm watching things, uh, players and how they just adapt to uh, different things, how they come up with different things, you know, no one thought about a player taking a step backwards, only going forward. So when Harden starts stepping backwards, you know, initially we were like, that's a travel. But now when you look at the rule, the rule doesn't say which direction the player has to be going. So when people say, oh, that's always been a travel, it has been, it was because no one did it regularly. But just to see the things, you know, like the uh, players, when they see that the guy's holding his arm out, it used to be you would just go up and take your shot. Now they go get the arm, you know? So just to watch the game evolve from a standpoint of trying to stay up with what the players do, um, for me, that's how I see the game. I, I don't really see it from the vantage point of a fan. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, and you know, it, it's it's, um, it's refreshing to to hear that because as a as a referee, you get a lot of uh, chatter from from fans sometimes, and so and so hearing how you know you're judging the product that's on the court, and you already called the players; they're the product; they're the reason why people are watching. And it's your job to judge that. I think that that's a very good perspective that not a lot of fans hear. Um, you, I, I heard you speak recently at a, at a local sports club here in Norfolk, and you talked about how analytics hasn't just changed the, the game the way that front offices and players see it, but also the way referees see it and are judged. How has it impacted your role as an official in the NBA, analytics? Well, it really has an impact on our role. <clears throat> it's just a measurement tool that they use now. So <clears throat> now they can try to put in some sort of matrix how well an official is doing. And so I think it's a, it's a great tool when used for um, things such as showing trends and everything else. But basketball is so subjective that um, it's very difficult in a, subject, a subjective type situation and a craft um, to really be able to say, hey, we can apply numbers to it. But I think from, a, from the standpoint of showing trends, showing where I'm deficient in, and if I'm in a certain position on the floor, I get more plays right or more plays wrong from those positions. I think it's a, um, it's a good thing. Um, just trying to find the right uh, to find the right process, if you will, um, and how you determine what is correct and incorrect. I think that's where um, there's that's a work in progress relative to the official side, and probably the same thing with the teams and the players. You know, they know when a player takes a shot from a certain spot that this player is, you know, fifty percent. And so it's the same thing with, with officiating. From this spot, you're 50%. From this spot, you're this. And if you are supposed to be watching something else, and in that instance, and yet you stuck your nose in the business over there when you're supposed to be watching something else, you're 25%. So then that says, stop sticking your nose over in somebody else's business. And that could be a collective type thing for the entire group of referees that when you're not taking care of your own area and busy in somebody else's that we're not as good. So from trends like 
that I think is it's a it's a good thing. What are some things as an official that go unseen by computers that you feel are not as valued now as they should be? Well, you know, people have their um, ideas about each referee when they show up. And um, the one thing that we want to do all the time is be right. We're all type A personalities and we don't care who's playing. Well, the people don't believe that, but we really don't care who's playing. Like we are, we are like refereeing against the videotape. Like we just want to be able to look at the videotape and say that we were correct because that's what our job is based on. And so when you when we read all the things, hear all the things that people say, um, at the end of the day, um, it's in this business, it's about being correct, um, working as a team, and not having an impact on the outcome of the game. That's the charter. And so it doesn't matter whether we're talking about stats or we're talking about courage or we're talking about, you know, come on now, you're in Milwaukee and it's game six and, you know, uh, player like in the instance where Portis, you know, he got upset at something I called a run down the floor and he's the fan favorite and you call a tactical foul. You know, um, you, you might have to fly out of Chicago the next morning and stood out of Milwaukee. So um, there are some things that they call intangibles and um, those things, you know, play a huge part in it. But I can tell you that it's a lot of a lot of pressure. It's what you live to do. You live to work those type of games. But anybody that didn't tell you that it wasn't a lot of pressure would not be telling you the truth, in my opinion. Um, it's, 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 it's a lot of pressure and what you're doing is impacting history. But when you go back to the whole idea is to be right, then when you find out at the end of the game that you had no impact on history other than you kept everything fair, um, that the better team won, not in game six, but overall every night, because we're talking, you know, 80 games that the better team won, if you didn't have any impact in that entire year on the outcome, then you know that was a successful season, no matter whether you worked the finals or did not work the playoffs at all. When you use terms like pressure and, and impacting history or being a part of history, you know, do you personally have a plan to stay within yourself when there are those 100,000 people both in and out of the arena to make sure that I have to make sure that I stay within myself and not let this outside these outside factors pressure me into making a call. Do you have something that you do on the regular on a regular basis to stay within yourself? Well, that's a different different thing. The pressure that I'm talking about is created from within. Okay. We don't care about the fans relative to what they're saying, and whether or not we're in Milwaukee or we're in Phoenix or whatever. We have a game to referee they're going to clap and they're going to boo the same in each arena, just at opposite times. Right. So it really doesn't matter. Like that doesn't have any effect. It is that pressure from within that you're striving for perfection and hopefully you'll fall on excellence. That's what drives you uh, when you're out there. But that outside noise, like it's, 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 it's kind of comical sometimes because People are yelling and screaming about things. And sometimes it's rules that they don't know and whatever. And so, uh, but you really truly don't hear it most of the time. Um, every now and then it's like one person in the arena that you always hear. But for the most part, you 
pretty much know what's coming. And we're part of a different type of profession in that um, there's negativity all the time. And so I say we either have to be pretty special or something is wrong with us to do what we do because it really doesn't bother us that way. So that pressure from within to be excellent um, or actually to be perfect and knowing that you won't be and you feel excellence, that's, that's the pressure. But as far as the people and all that stuff, nah, it's tougher to go and speak in front of the sports club than <laughs> to go out there in front of those people. Well, it's obviously a high profile job, but, you know, it, it sounds like it can be kind of a thankless job sometimes. You know, you don't really get a whole lot of credit for the good calls you make. You know, what led Tony Brothers to be an NBA referee or to be a basketball official? Well, I, as I said earlier, I'm a judge. I wanted to be a judge, a real judge. And um, I am a real judge, but a different type of judge. I wanted the black robe and the whole nine. And um and I applied to UVA and William and Mary so that I could go to their law school and neither one of them accepted me out of, out of high school. And my mom made a call over to Old Dominion and Old Dominion accepted me a week before school started. So I was a commuter kid expecting to have been a kid at William and Mary or, Old, I mean, or UVA. When I graduated from Old Dominion, I went to work for a consulting firm. Once again, my mom made a phone call to someone she knew got me a job at a consulting firm called Tidewater Consultants. And so when I was there, um, I was doing what I was doing as a systems analyst. And one day a lady walked past my office and she had a black and white striped shirt across her arm. And so I was asked her where she was going and she told me. And so I started out with baseball. I was umpiring and then football season came and basketball season. Then there was a local guy here that ran the officials in football and basketball named Dick Bowie, who's passed away now. And he was like, hey, man, I think you got a future in this. And he took me under his wing and guided me in the right direction into the right places. And so it's some camps that are run in conjunction with like the five star basketball camp. They have an officials camp there. And so one was run by an NBA referee. Someone from the NBA saw me, they invited me to LA, put me in the CBA, and then I spent four years there and then into the NBA. And so now I'm the judge, the jury, prosecuting attorney, defense attorney, and not, nothing's overturned except by replay. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in a way, you know, you you got to do what you want to do, just maybe in a different, uh, different packaging, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, you, you're a man who obviously likes a challenge because you took on quite the challenge over the last 18 months by opening a restaurant during a pandemic. What's given you more sleepless nights, the restaurant or NBA players? And I actually think I know where this answer is going. Actually, I've had more sleepless nights from my nonprofit. We just had our celebrity weekend this past weekend and it's over. So now I feel like I'm born. And for hope, correct? And for hope, yes. So that creates more sleepless nights. Um, my fiance runs the restaurant and um, it runs like a top. I mean, it, it's amazing to watch what she has done and put together with zero restaurant experience, um, but she's project manager type process oriented. And that's what we have is a process. And so the response from everyone here has, has been amazing. Um, I mean, we are sold out just about every night. Um, we have live entertainment there three nights a week. and. The other nights were sold out. We bring in national acts once a month. Um, it's something different for downtown, but ironically, her son 
is the chef. And um, he is uh, um, he's the reason why uh, we have been able to do what we've been able to do. So between that combo there, um, we really um, um, have, you know, made our, our, you know, our names known in uh, Norfolk. People are coming when they come. They like what they see. They like what they eat. They like what they hear. And they come back. So it opened January 26th. So in six months, um, you know, we have really, really grown and done extremely well. But it's because of Kimberly and Kevin and not me. I kiss the babies, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's them. And the fact that the people here, um, I never would have imagined that people would come out to support me the way that they have come out to support me. I mean, it is the most humbling thing. So you can talk all day about <clears throat> basketball and people see you on TV and all of those things. But for me, the biggest thing, the greatest thing um, is that people literally come to support me. Like I, it is, I just, sometimes I go in there and I just shake my head. Like tonight, um, one of Jeff Van Gundy's friends um, who he's a doctor at EVMS is coming over. And so Jeff sent his friend over. Emmett Smith was in the other night. Um, you know, it, it, it's just, um, it's, it's just, it just blows my mind to be honest with you. And something that, you know, when, we, when I went into the bubble, um, I started with someone else and to get out. And now it's, um, now it's opening up and going. Brothers is considered the new blues alley in the jazz world. And it's, it's just kind of a whirlwind, but um, I, I would take all the credit, but well, I didn't do all of this. Um, it is people that work hard and, um, and, and I, I'm just thankful for them. I mean, God has shown me so much favor in my life and uh, I can't tell you that it's been easy, um, but it's definitely rewarding. So. Um, for all those that come out, I, I, I really appreciate it. Well, I think you mentioned it, but the name of the restaurant is Brothers, and it's in downtown Norfolk here in southeastern Virginia. But I think one of the, the reasons why there is so much support is because beyond, you already mentioned it, beyond your basketball career and, and the fact of being a high-profile figure, you know, you've been very uh, organized with charitable activities here in Hampton Roads for many, many years. And, and we alluded to it initially, but your Men for Hope organization, you began in 2015, and the organization's mission is to support underserved men, organize their efforts in the community, and work with organizations providing services for single women, parents, and young men. And, and I wanted to give you a chance to kind of talk about that, why you're so passionate about these, these causes, and, uh, and just give you the platform here to, to just talk about that and, and, uh, and the work that you do through Men for Hope. Well, Men for Hope is a spinoff of Still Hope Foundation, which my ex-wife and I started back a long time ago. Um, and when I got divorced, I uh, branched out and started my own, but Still Hope worked with single moms. Men for Hope works with young men that are product of single parent households, which I am a product of a single parent household, but not the normal single parent household where the father's not involved. It's quite the opposite. My father was extremely involved in my life. And my mom was the highest ranking minority female at Bank of America corporate wide. So we had all of what we needed and most of what we wanted. 
So I don't have the story that others have that I'm a product of a single parent household that life has been so bad. It's quite the opposite. But my mom laid down at 57 to go to sleep and didn't wake up. And I believe that it was from the stresses of being a single mom. Just because you have the resources doesn't mean that making sure you have a person to babysit the kids or whatever the case may be, that those things don't cause stress. And that stress, we all know, um, shortens our life. And so for me, I wanted to do something that if I could buy young men one more day with their mom, then I did something good. And so I started out wanting to start programs and everything, but that part about organizing men's efforts in the community was that everybody's grabbing for the same dollar. So I said, instead of doing that, let's find organizations with like missions and support those organizations. So an achievable dream is an organization that has a like mission to men for hope. Yes, they deal with young ladies and with young men, but what we have done is we have events now. So we have golf tournament, we have all types of events, concerts and everything. And the proceeds from those things go to an achievable dream and to an endowment in Norfolk State that's in my mom's name. Um, she did two years of elementary education at Norfolk State and didn't graduate from there because she was pregnant with me. I fought hard to try to get her an honorary doctorate, but their charter doesn't allow it if you passed away. But we since found a common ground where I have an auditorium or had an auditorium dedicated to my mom in student building, student union building. So for me, it's really the passion of honoring my mother and preserving a legacy that she created. And by bringing people to the Hampton Roads area from Doc Rivers to Patrick Ewing to PJ Carlissimo, Jeff Van Gundy, and all the people, Sinbad, that have come in over the years to support this, I can help put Norfolk on the map from a standpoint of people knowing about this Celebrity Weekend all over the country. They know about the Celebrity Weekend. At the same time, bring in resources and create philanthropists out of people that normally are not philanthropists because to buy a ticket to an event makes you a philanthropist. So teaching, giving, and, um, and all that comes with that and being able to support organizations. The drive really is my mom. And I'll say this real quick that if my mom was still living, I don't know that I'm such a great guy that I would be doing this or any of this would have come about. So. I don't want anybody to think that, hey, you know, you're born and, and you're just born to give and born to give back. And born, you want to just be out here doing things. You know, God has a way of directing all of us to where God would have us to be. And in this instance, I don't, God didn't take my mother away early to make me start a nonprofit. But I believe that God knew that was a byproduct of what all of the grand plan is. And so I'm not innately just this uh, good guy that wanted to help everybody. I have become that person. I, as I started to see there was a true need uh, that single moms had true needs, the young men had true needs. It led me to being the person and doing the things that I do now, but it's just, I wasn't born that way. Um, so I, I want everybody to know that if your life hasn't been where you have been a person out here you know, doing things to help people, it's never too late to do that. And I'm, I'm, I get credit for, oh, this guy's amazing, this guy's amazing, but I got my flaws too, just like everybody else. So you can help somebody by contacting a nonprofit and just volunteering, or, you know, you, it's so many things you can do, so.
Well, I know so many people in, in our community here locally and probably beyond are, are just thankful that you received that inspiration somehow. And, mm -hmm. and we're just happy that you got inspired. And, and Tony, I think we're going we're gonna to end it on that note because that's a great note to end it on. It, it's always a pleasure catching up with you. Uh, I'm, I'm a little lucky. I do get to talk to you a little bit more throughout the course of the year. But uh, we, we wish you the best of luck as you get ready for training camp. And hopefully you get some rest here sometime soon. So thanks for joining I'll, us today. I'll be fine. Thanks for having me. You take care. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. Well, make sure you follow Tony at, at TBrothers25 on Twitter, and you can catch him back on NBA Courts here in the coming weeks. Again, I'd like to thank everyone who tuned in, as well as our partners, Priority Automotive, City of Virginia Beach, Davcon Inc., Optima Health, ESPN Radio 94.1, and our friends at the Hampton Road Sports Commission. Once again, I'm Will Driscoll, the Executive Director here at the Hall of Fame, and whatever you do, participate, don't spectate. Have a great night, everybody.